0: Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. Now the podcast is still on a break, but when I was given the opportunity to talk with today's guest, I just knew I had to share it with everyone. That's because today's episode is with former Vice President Joe Biden. We discussed the presidential campaign, his standing with the African-American community, the gaffes, and America's role in the world. And you can hear all of that right now. Vice President Biden, thank you very much for being on the podcast.
1: It's a delight to be with you.
0: Now, is it true this is your first ever podcast podcast?
1: I know it's my first ever podcast, but it's the first major podcast with a major uh, political reporter or figure.
0: <laughs> You're off to a good start. Um, <laughs> but really, Vice President Biden, thank you very much for doing this. We're on the campus of Clinton College in Rock Hill, South Carolina, historically ba- black college. Why here?
1: Well, I wanted to be up in the, what they call the North Country, which. Uh, is predominantly Republican in the general election. But there's a lot of folks up here who are going to play a role in determining uh, who the nominee is in terms of the primary here. And so I'm covering the entire state from the low country all the way up here. And, uh, and, uh, I think it's, you know, South Carolina is an important state. Uh, it's, uh, one of the gates you got to get through to get the nomination. And, uh, one of the, there's two primaries and two, uh, caucuses and, uh, It's really important. But I've been coming here a long, long time because of my relationship with Fritz Hollings and other elected officials, uh, you know, former Governor Riley and uh, Mayor Riley and, uh, you know, in Charleston. There have been friends and supporters for a long, long time.
0: So uh, I attended the town hall that you did earlier today. um, And the crowd was most animated when you went at – well when you talked about President Trump and what he the damage he's done to our to our vision of ourselves and also our our standing in the world and it almost seems that the passion is more about defeating trump than supporting anyone specifically am i am i reading that right i mean you are the confirmed front runner for the nomination but am i reading it right that the passion really is about getting rid of donald trump
1: i think there is a real passion for getting rid of donald trump But I think there's also a passion for electing somebody who they think can, in fact, repair the damage that Trump has done and to actually bring the country back together and unite the country uh, on the basic fundamental things that make America, America. And, um, And so that's why I think you see the response to the soul of America argument I'm making, because they know how deeply I feel it. And the truth is, Jonathan, we can't get much of anything done if we don't repair that soul. We don't begin to work together again if we don't. We'd stop. Look, we've always had this this debate in America. There's just been this, uh, as I said downstairs, uh, American history is not a fairy tale. There's always been this this debate between uh, evil and good, or, or you know, justice and lack of justice, and between. There's always been periods of our history when. Uh, Beyond the Original Sin of Slavery, where we have tried to categorize people as the problem, dividing America. And it's never worked when that's occurred. And uh, so how do you get and deal with, for example, the need for universal health care? How do you deal with fundamentally altered education opportunities for people, Make taking advantage of the opportunities that exist, unless you can you know, sort of heal the soul here? I mean, people get it. Uh, um, and And by the way, Republicans get it, as well as Democrats and independents uh, this is not who we are. A colleague of yours uh, who is a columnist uh, David Brooks, conservative mm-hmm. columnist, talks about that you know every society is held up by the moral fabric of that society that the kind of the basic American creed, decency, honor, the notion that leave nobody behind, that things are bigger than just you, et cetera. And um, uh, we've never fully lived up to it, but we've never walked away from it. And this president's walked away from it. As a matter of fact, made it the issue as to why he would stay in power by trying to
0: divide us. During the town hall, you um, talked about the fact that, you know, we know who the president is. And you have made the point that even his supporters know who he is, but we need to show the world who we are. Talk. Can you talk more about what has the president done that has made America and Americans feel like we don't even recognize who we are anymore?
1: Well, as to what he's done, you know, look, uh, he has deliberately from the beginning set around, set uh, uh, as a goal to divide America. From the very beginning, he walk He comes down the escalator and is in his uh, hotel where he, uh, um, where he says at uh, the Trump Tower, I should say, where he says, he's, you know, Mexicans are rapists. I mean, so he starts off his campaign. He has vilified, uh, you know, immigrants. He talks about Muslims being, you know, just not basically good people. I mean, he just, he, he goes, he, 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 you know, and now, I mean, the thing I talked about today was I couldn't believe what he's decided to do. He's decided to take children who were here as, as the children of people coming to try to get medical help and assistance who are not citizens for their children that are dying of cancer or they have, have, have serious diseases. And he's saying, no, by the 16th, I think it's the 16th, some date in, in, uh, in September, you got to leave.
0: Right, what, 33 what, days, I think is the, the What,
1: what, what is right. that? I mean, it's all kidding aside. That, it, it it's a sin. I mean, how can we, a country as wealthy and great and powerful and and capable, how can we say we don't have room to take care of 20, 70, 100, 1,000 kids who can't find medical help where they live and may die? I mean, what, what is happening to us? Can you imagine any other president doing that in modern history? I can't fathom it. No. So so you asked me about what it is about him. He has um, – I don't know whether it's that he realizes that uh, um, he has to keep this this really base base he has with him to be able to continue to intimidate the Republican Party because he gets 90 percent of what's left of the Republican Party. I, I don't know what it is, but it's not who we are, and look how it damages us. Yeah, damn it. People look at us. I mean, you travel around the world. What do people – I know I'm not interviewing you. I don't expect you to answer. But my point <laughs> is that ask anybody who's traveled around the world. They, they say, what's going on? What's happening? Or his embrace of Putin and deciding that, well, why, why did why did Obama kick him out of the G8? I mean, come on, man. This guy violated every international norm and commitment that was made. He invaded another country. He annexed an entire section of the country, the Crimea. He still has little green men trying to take down the government. I mean, what? Are we? I don't get it. He stands before the world and believes Putin saying he didn't interfere in our elections and says the, 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 the almost two dozen intelligence agents, I think it's 18 of them, said, no, 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 he did interfere. What does that do to us with the rest of the world? He talks about love letters with Kim Jong-un, the art of the deal. I mean, I don't. maybe he has some secret sauce I don't know about, but it's bizarre. It's bizarre. And, and, and now that the economy may be slipping from him because of the stupid positions he's taken on trade as well as on the tax policy, what's happening? He acts like he's losing. It. He talks about I'm the chosen one. I don't want to quote exactly, but you know all the things he said. It seems almost irrational, and uh, and and the rest of the world, even here, the marks go. Whoa, wait a minute. Because look, I know you covered it, but when I made that speech in Western Iowa about the soul of the nation it said, "President's words matter. Mm-hmm. They really do. They really matter." As I said then, that, that that they can affect markets up or down, they can reassure a nation. They can they can appeal to our better angels, but they can also go to the deepest, darkest sides that's always existed in America and every other country.
0: Well, on that point, you know, and I'm going to ask you a, a provo- I'm going to make a provocative statement. Okay. You know, put that out there. But I've I've said on television several times that President Trump is a racist with a white supremacist policy agenda. Am I wrong?
1: No. Now, I'm, you know, there, there's two things. One, are you a racist because you really believe it and you hate African Americans, etc., and others? Or you are a charlatan and you you don't care much about it, but you know you can appeal to people. So I'm not going to make the judgment whether his policies are racist. And so that's why I've refused to get into the issue of whether or not he personally is a racist. He is promoting policies that are racist policies. He is, in fact, I mean, the idea that, I mean, look at the comments made by uh, um, David Duke after uh, what happened in Charlotte. I'm paraphrasing. Charlottesville. Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. Imagine what he said. He said something to the effect of, well, this is why we elected the guy. He was going to change the nation, bring bring back... I mean, what's going on here? Did he condemn David Duke? I don't ever hear him say that. And then when he was asked to condemn what happened in Charlottesville, he said they were really just marching to protect a statue of Robert De Lee or somebody. Mm-hmm. Come on, man. But my point is that it seems across the board, or, you know, when he talks about the way he talks about Muslims, the way he talks about them as if they're... Pariah, the way he talks about um, immigrants, as if they are they're, they're corrupting America. This is they're all they all terror. I mean, it's just bizarre. And, it, and I, I wasn't joking when I said our children are listening. It, the, the example I use with people when I'm speaking to audiences that are not overwhelmingly just Democratic audiences, I say, imagine if your kids started off school. This week, most schools are opening. And the principal of the school stood up on the, an assembly and said the exact same things that Donald Trump said about racism, about Muslims, about immigrants, etc. What would you be doing? I said, my guess is you'd be calling the school board to get that principal fired. But we act like, well, you know, this is just who Trump is. But it's corrosive. Everything he's doing is undermining the essence of who we are. And a long time ago, uh, Tony Blinken, who was my national security advisor, wrote a sentence for me that I've used many, many times. And I think it's the best way to explain what I was trying to express years ago. And that is we've led not just by the example of our power, but the power of our example. That's why we've been able to lead the world. And our example is terrible for the rest of the world to look at. What do you think going on in other capitals when they say this president's on immigration policy has decided to take away the ability of children who need life-saving care to be here and they're going to disconnect them from whatever they are if they're connected to it mm-hmm. and send them back to a country that does not have that capacity? I mean, My lord. And so, anyway, I, I just, am, I think he is, um, he's used a tool that many charlatans have used throughout history, and that is the best way to maintain power is to find a scapegoat, the other. For whatever problem you have, your problem is because of the other. It's that immigrant that cost you your job. It is that black person who did this to you. It is... I mean it is a tool that's been used many times and it really is um a threat to our democratic institutions.
0: Um as I mentioned we're in South Carolina. Yep. Um high country wait what did you call it high country? What are we well, not low country.
1: No there there there's low country and upstate.
0: Upstate. Well we're upstate because we're upstate. We're, just, we're not far we're not far from Charlotte. Yes. And South Carolina, we're in South Carolina because it is the fourth. It's the fourth contest, and it's the fourth contest because the African American electorate here is sixty percent of the vote. And as has been discussed, no one's going to win the Democratic nomination for president without winning the African American vote. Um, you are right now the overwhelming favorite um, of, of those of African Americans polled, but within the African American community, there's a schism. Um, and i'm going to take each schism one by okay. one the first schism is what i call the my aunt gloria schism so i went to my family barbecue in north carolina northern north carolina and i polled everyone at the at the at the picnic 26 people 20 of them said you were there you were their first choice and i asked my aunt gloria who is the most outspoken about why now, she said she loves Kamala Harris, Senator Harris, but she thinks you're the person to go up against Trump because, quote, it's going to take an old white person to beat an old white person. <laughs> old school against old school. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I I, uh, I hope she's wrong. I don't think that's uh, that's the case. But um, look, um, what it underscores is that uh, I found in all communities, but particularly the African-American community, there's an overwhelming concern about Trump remaining as president. I think uh, overstated this, viewed as sort of an existential threat to the African-American community minority communities. But I also think there is a real desire to um, elect someone who they think understands the community and understands what makes it tick understands the dilemmas that they face. My dad used to have an expression, Joey, I don't expect the government to solve my problems. I expect them to understand it. And I think that I have demonstrated through my career that not only do I, there, there has never been a time I've ever been uncomfortable in a black community. Whether it's a black church, it's a tough neighborhood, it's a wealthy neighborhood, there's never been a time and so it's not like I, 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 I find myself, um, I think most, the vast majority of the community, young and old, knows where my heart is. Um, and, uh, um, and so I also think, I mean, for example, if they knew there was someone else, uh, let's say someone who did not have a uh, – a, a overwhelming commitment to the African American community and wasn't familiar with the opportunities and dilemmas. I doubt whether they'd say, "Well, I'd be that person, even though they don't understand my community, just because he can beat Trump." They'd be looking for someone who maybe doesn't have as good a chance of beating Trump, but understands the problems and the opportunities that we face. And so, I I, I have not, uh, you know, I. I your aunt could be right. I don't think she is when the assertion is made that, well, the reason the only person that can beat Trump is, quote, an old white guy. Um, uh, I, um, uh, I, I just think that, I mean, I think there's other people in the race who can beat Trump. Who? Um, well, I, 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 I think almost anybody, they'd all make a better president than Trump, no matter who's left in the race. But I also think that there are people who have to be able to convince – you have to do two things. That old joke, you've got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. You've got to be able to convince that the African-American community, that you understand the concerns and you have answers to deal with the dilemmas that they face and um, minority communities overall. And at the same time, that you can beat Trump. But it goes beyond that. You have to be able to um, uh, uh, be able to have support across the spectrum of support in the, dem- the basic Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Look, you have—I don't know whether you've ever written about it, but you've you've talked to me about it. I'm of the view that you don't have to choose between your heart and your soul as a Democrat. That being that, there are a lot of folks who said, "Well, you know what? You can't be concerned about that." white high school educated person's problems and still be progressive. I've never found that to be the case. I've never found you have to choose between your heart and your soul. I have, you know, I mean, you know, I I, I get overwhelming support from working class uh, folks of all backgrounds. And at the same time, I get significant support in my career from African-Americans, as well as I get support from folks who who are... uh, have decided that we weren't listening to them and voted for Trump last time. Um, There's not that many of them that switched, but the the point is, it's a combination of turning out the vote and turning back that those couple hundred thousand votes, less than that probably, that actually went for Trump Um, because we stopped talking to their concerns. Um, It wasn't Hillary's Fault. It was the nature of the way politics began to change. We weren't talking about the concerns of that first. You know, for example, you got a, um, you know, whether African American, whether it's a Latino, whether it's a, a high school edu- white, educated white person, and all of a sudden they've been working, get, making average, which would be shown fifty thousand bucks a year at a outlet that for one of the you know the Benetton or Sachs or any of it. And all of a sudden, 200,000 lose their job and they're 50 years old. And they're making 50 grand and no one talked to them because what was happening? Amazon came along. Nobody bad did it to them. Amazon comes along and people are buying online now. So they're shutting down. But we used to, the way I've always been taught is you got to understand, let people know you understand the problem. Mm-hmm. There's things we can do for those folks. Just like Barack and I did in the administration by retraining people, giving them opportunities is hard. But talk to them, say, I understand. Or how many of those truck drivers out there making a good living? And react? act, you know, a lot, lots of times we uh, very sophisticated decided they're not that smart. Well, let me tell you something. They're smart enough to know that they're predicting there'll be no truck drivers later because they're automa- the, uh, the, the making truck driving, uh, you know, a – Something that doesn't require physically a driver. Well, you know, I know guys I grew up with are going, whoa, Joe, I'm going to lose my job. So here's a person, 50 years old, 55 years old, busted their neck, making a good living. And all of a sudden they say all trucks, and this was the prediction, within four years, it's not going to be four years, they're going to be, in fact, driverless trucks. And you're not going to need the driver anymore. And they're sitting there going, what do I do? Talk to me, Joe. Tell me. Tell me what's going on. We stopped talking to those people. That The big change in the 2018 election, we started talking to them again. We went into their districts. We went and talked to people about health care. We talked to people about their problems. We talked to people about who were legitimately worried about their future. Some took the bait and said, you know, the reason this has happened, the reason you don't have a job is because that immigrant's coming up and taking your job reason you don't have that job is because, you know, that black person just had an advantage in getting this job. You didn't get But that wasn't many. It's just there's legitimate concerns because we're in the middle of a, a fourth industrial mm-hmm. revolution going on, and we're not talking to them.
0: The second half of the schism within the black community. So Uncle Gloria is the first half. Old white person can beat an old white person old school against old school. And then there's the other side of the schism that's represented by Jamil Smith of Rolling Stone, who had a column recently, um, where he's quoting uh, a reverend from Philadelphia, talking about you saying, I don't think any of the candidates will help us with a Barack Obama style turnout. But I think Biden is like getting back into old comfortable shoes that will allow us to get our footing back. Jamil has a problem with this. And he has a problem with What you said a moment ago about, um, you know, there's no part of the African-American community that you you don't feel uh, uncomfortable in. And he writes, that led me to wonder why we haven't seen much of him thus far in this campaign talking to the black communities that he told The Times. He has, quote, never, ever, ever in my entire life had a circumstance where I felt uncomfortable introducing himself and his policies to our voters. I cannot help but wonder whether he and his campaign consider it too risky to put Biden in front of black folks who may have a particular image of him as a sidekick to their beloved Obama. And then he opens his mouth and they're all confronted with the reality. How what is your response to that? I don't know
1: what he's talking about. I speak to black communities all the time. Come on, have him come. I invite him to come with me. I invite him to come with me. I go to black churches. I speak in black churches. I show up in black churches. I come to communities that are overwhelmingly black, whether it is in, whether it's in Iowa and there are some black communities there. You watch today. How many of those ministers lined up to support me in the, in, in the town hall today? Look, I mean, the idea that I'm uncomfortable in black communities, tell them to go back to Delaware. Interview anybody you want to ask in the black community. Not saying everybody's with me. Ask them whether or not. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I've always been there. So this idea that, uh, you know, I um, uh, <laughs> you know, open my mouth, what is it that he thinks that I'm wrong about with regard to the problems relating and the dilemmas relating to the black community? I mean, open my mouth, and then they're going to change their view. Well, you know, maybe he should come with me.
0: There seems to be a, a generational split. So my aunt Gloria is north of north of fifty. Jamil is south of is south of forty. How do you convince um, Jamil and that generation, the younger generation of African Americans, that um, you are about the future and not about showing up and clinging and, and, to the show, life preserver up. of President Obama?
1: No, it's not about. It. The The only reason I've ever picked Obama was they're talking about my past, saying that Biden was a racist. You're thinking or or not a racist, but he's insensitive. My point was not because I am a friend of Obama's and I've always had his back. Why would he have picked me if he thought I had a racist bone in my body or I wasn't good in the black community? I mean, it's just come on. But it's not that's not my justification for being. Arguing that I should earn, and I can't earn the African American vote, no matter what their age. The fact is, I haven't seen data showing that. In fact, young blacks don't support Joe Biden. I haven't seen that. Have him show it to me. Maybe he is. I get it. You know, I, I, I and he's entitled to not support Biden. But the fact is that I mean, I, uh, you know, as Vice President, I spent my time going into black communities and black churches. And uh, so I I just – I'm not quite sure where that comes from. But, um, uh, you know, I uh, like I said, uh, you know, when I show up at Temple University, there's an awful lot of African-Americans that show up for me. When I went around the country with It's On Us campaign, there were thousands of collectively African-Americans, young, college-educated, and college students that are for me. So I've not seen the data that – you know, people under 40 in the black community don't support Joe Biden or support somebody else a great deal more. If it's, It could be. I haven't <clears> seen <throat> it. I haven't felt it.
0: So there are two – so if there are two um, narratives about the, the Joe Biden campaign for president, one, it's about your standing within the black community. The other one is about the so-called gaffes um, where you have said things that w- weren't exactly right um mushed stories. And right now there's a story um, by my colleague at the Washington Post, Matt Visor. Um, the headline, as he campaigns for president, Joe Biden tells a moving but false war story and synopsis. It's three separate stories smashed into one that isn't that isn't true. How do you ha- one, what is your response to the, I've the story? I've not read the article, Matt, but my Matt response Fison, is Taffey. similar
1: to a story he had about the, uh, the fact that um, you know, uh, uh, Joe Biden you know, talked about the assassination of Barack Obama. Well, everybody understood the context. It was a totally different context that was all about. Later, everybody clarified it. But it was, it was a, there was no gaffe there. I was making the point to a group of young people that imagine if your generation were confronted with the things that happened in mine. And I said, imagine what would happen. I was making a comparison of Bobby Kennedy being assassinated on the eve of the nomination. I said, what would have happened to the country if that had occurred then? So we have to be strong. We have to realize that we have to change things. Now, only thing I know, I've been told, I've not read the story for real. I haven't seen it. I guess it came out this morning. But the assertion I made was there was a young man, who I attempted to pin a medal on at the request of the commander, and he said, "I don't want it. he died. he died. Well, it turns out that's true. The young man did say that they went back, I'm told I didn't see the story and confirmed that, yeah, that's exactly true. That's what I was talking about. There was a separate incident that they're going that, that that occurred in a different time in a different circumstance, but what I was talking about was a young man. I mean, what is the gaff when I said there was a young man I tried to pin a medal on. He said, I don't want it, sir. He died. He died. He died. And it was a young man, my recollection was, that in fact pulled a colleague of his out of a burning Humvee and he risked his life doing it and the young man died that he tried to save. His commanders asked me to pin the medal on when I was in theater. And when I went to do it, he said, I don't want it, sir. He took it. I pinned it on him. He said, he died, sir. He died. I was making the point how courageous these people are, how incredible they are. This generation of warriors, these fallen angels we've lost. And so that I don't know what the problem is. I mean, what is
0: it that I said wrong? So in in the story, um, about a few paragraphs down from the top, um, it, it, it They write, except almost every detail in the story appears to be incorrect. Based on interviews with more than a dozen U.S. troops, their commanders, and Biden campaign officials, it appears as though the former vice president has jumbled elements of at least three actual events into one story of bravery, compassion, and regret that never happened. He just
1: confirmed it happened.
0: And, and so what I'm getting at here is... And what this story does, it sort of feeds, it feeds into the narrative that jo- Joe Biden makes things up, Joe Biden is too old, Joe Biden isn't, isn't all there. How do you keep the narrative, the too old narrative, from damaging your campaign? How do you break out of this narrative?
1: Can you? Well, I can only break out of it when I win because there's a number of reporters who are convinced from the beginning. For example, what's the narrative from beginning? The narrative is the parties move way left. There is no room anymore. It's the new progressive party that is way, way left. I, I, you know, that, that was a story, right? That, you know, really bright people like AOC got elected and that's where we're going and that's what's happened. Well, look at the results of the elections. The results of the election, I went into 24 states with over, campaigned for over 60 candidates. The people who beat Republicans are all mainstream progressive Democrats. Every one of them. Every one of them. So tell me, I don't get this story where all of a sudden the Democratic Party is lurched way, way left. We've always had that debate within the Democratic I ran with George McGovern, for God's sake. Back in so I, I but I don't quite get what this is about, except that it's part of the narrative that was written right after the election.
0: And, you know, you guys are gonna stick with it till it's proven wrong. What do you tell what do you tell voters for whom this might be an issue? I don't tell I mean, them anything. It,
1: I'm just gonna go out and say what I believe, why I'm doing what I'm doing, and how I'm gonna do it. And how I'm going to do it. It's a little bit like, uh, um, you know, I, I just, I, I find it interesting that, you know, with a record that I have of, like, for example, the big thing was Biden misrepresented. He spoke to the students from Parkland. Well, what I misrepresented was a one word. I said, when I was vice president, I went up on Capitol Hill and I met with the parents and these young students as they're about to lobby their congresspersons. I did. But it was in eighteen. It was in seven. But we were out of office. I was the vice. I was vice president, but I wasn't the sitting vice president. But it happened. <laughs> I met with all of those people, and I was asked to meet with them. Unlike other people were asked to meet with them. And the point I was making was they have the reason why we're going to win this fight on guns and rational gun policy is they've energized the whole generation. I watched what was happening as these parents and children were going to comment to to a, a lobby a congressman, they were going, hiding, you know, I know I, I can't see him. I don't, because they know the pressure that puts on them. But the fact I said I was vice president. Well, I wasn't the vice president. I met them when I said I did. It was in Capitol on Capitol Hill. Everything I said was true. And I'm still called vice president. So I said right. vice president. So the idea, and everybody goes, well, okay, well, he didn't get the dates wrong. He did go up there after out of office. It was in Capitol Hill.
0: What's the deal here, man? Let me ask you three rapid fire, sure. rapid fire questions because I see your team is already up okay. on their feet, okay. no, ready no, to get you back. out of here. Okay, would you keep the tariffs against against China? Because Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer um, likes going going toe to toe with China. So, would you keep the tariffs?
1: I do too like going go to, going toe to toe with China on things that matter. It is not the it is not the fact that we have a deficit with China as it relates to our trade. It's the fact that we're not dealing with China in the place where it most hurts. They're stealing our intellectual property. They're demanding anybody invest in China has 51% ownership of a Chinese entity. They're demanding that, et cetera. What I'm going to do as president is we make up 25% of the world economy. Either we, in fact, are going to be the organizers of the rules of the road on trade or China is. So we have to bring together the rest of the world. We have to get up to the 40% of the people who agree with us, instead of offending all of our trading partners who are our allies, join us and say, China, here are the rules, man. We're not going to deal with you unless you follow the following rules. Sounds like TPP. It is, except for one thing. I argued then and I argue now. You have to have environmentalists and labor at the table before any agreement is made. That's what has to happen. And we've got to rebuild the American economy. The American economy, invest in these people, invest in these workers, invest in the idea that we can manufacture, where, as my mother would say, where's it written we can't be the manufacturing capital of the world? Where the hell's that written? I don't see where that's written. We, were, we brought back manufacturing. He's blown it up.
0: Uh, Iran, as president, would you get back into the Iran nuclear deal? Absolutely. And if you, if, you, if it was President Biden at the G7 and the far, Iranian foreign minister came to the G7, would you have met with him as I would, he did as he came to yeah, the G7 now?
1: I would not meet with anyone on a critical subject without having a competent foreign policy staff work out the details before we got there. The idea of just showing up on a critical issue without having, having worked through anything does not make sense. But I would encourage this all, all, all. my national security advisor, my secretary of state, my secretary of defense to be negotiating with them as to what is it you want to talk about and what are the circumstances so we know the ground rules before we sit down. Because you cannot make, especially uh, making judgments on the fly. I'm prepared to, to meet with anyone as president if, in fact, I understand what the game is. For example, I would not have met with Kim Jong-un until I knew he was going to make a commitment. What, what did he want most? Legitimacy. That was it. So the president, without making any concessions at all, meets with him. And gives him the legitimacy. And what did that do? It weakened our ability to maintain an embargo on those countries who would supply them with everything from energy
0: to technology. Is French President Emmanuel Macron, is he now the leader of the free world? And can the United States get that mantle back? Will the, tr- will the world trust America again? Let me put it this way.
1: For France and for the world, America has to get the mantle back. We are the indispensable nation, as the former Secretary of State said. And they need us, and they want us, but they got to have some knowledge that the President of the United States knows what he or she is talking about, has been there before, knows and has a competent team around them, that the State Department is not an echo chamber where you can holler down the hallway and hear an echo, that we've actually funded, funded the State Department. And that we haven't walked away from our basic commitments. So if I'm elected president, I suspect the first couple months, I'm going to be just on a reassurance tour on the telephone with a lot of the, our European leaders, as well as Asian leaders that are our allies saying, look, we got to put this back together. It is and, and it's critically important, not just for the United States, but for the rest of the world. Who else does it? Who else can do this? And I, I'm not being critical of Macron. I'm not being critical of any other single world leader. But we are the indispensable nation, and that's what the rest of the world knows. When I went to the to the, uh, um, you know, the, Munich Security Conference, you had – and this is – I'm going to shorthand, so don't quote me on – I mean, you can quote me. but you know, I, this, No, yeah, no, no. You know what I mean. I know what you mean. Uh, Angela Merkel stood up and said, "Basically, we got to go it alone." Telling her European friends, all the heads of state were there, the secret- foreign secretaries, the, uh, the the defense secretaries, national security advisors, and something like thirty-five members of the United States Congress. Used to John McCain used to lead, always lead that delegation, and you know everybody kind of nodded. Yeah, I guess we can't. We can, you know, we can't basically trust America to keep their commitments. This president treating NATO like it's a it's a protection racket. Pay up or we're not going to support you. What the hell are we talking about? And so secondly, you end up in a circumstance. And by the way, we, were, we got NATO to say they would, in fact, move toward their, two, their 2% commitment. But in addition to that, then what happened is Sec, uh, Vice President Pence uh, spoke up. He said, I, you know, I'm representing the president. There was dead silence in the room. Nothing. I get invited to get a standing ovation, not because of me. I get introduced because, you know, not everyone's do it, but I get this incredible <laughs> ovation. And what happens? It's not about me. My dad used to have an expression, don't compare me to the almighty, Joey. Compare me to the alternative. Well, you know, I'm standing up, and I'm, I'm actually having a rational position on what are, they asked me to speak to. Is there a view in America that still thinks that NATO is important? still thinks Europe is critical to us. And so I made the case, like most of the members of Congress made at the time. But, you know, what's going on here? So we have to, the United States has to lead the world. Last example I'll give you. You know, one of the things that occurred is, you know, we put together the Paris Climate Accord. And the, 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 the Paris Climate Accord calls for up in the ante every couple of years for all those over 170 nations that signed up to do, to be engaged. Well, we have so damaged our reputation among them. Who's going to pull that together? We make up 15% of the emissions that are contributing to global warming. 85% is the rest of the world. If we don't pull together, who does? We can get everything right at home. Net zero emissions, God willing. And guess what? The glaciers are still going to melt. We've still got a big problem. So you need to be able to regain the confidence of the world that you're in the deal. You're on their team. You know what this is about.
0: Former Vice President Joe Biden, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Well,
1: thank you for having me. I hope you'll invite me back.
0: Oh, come back anytime. All right. Thanks, man.